Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses COVID-19 Support Podcast, Episode 2. Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses COVID-19 Support Podcast. I'm your host, nurse journalist, Jamie Davis. Our goal is to discuss important nursing practices during the COVID-19 pandemic and offer tips for nurses on the front line or behind the scenes. We hear you, we're with you, and we support you. Thanks for joining us, whether you're listening in the car, at your house doing everyday chores, or maybe just taking a quick break. In this podcast series, we will do our best to provide you with the most current information from our incredible community of nurses. However, you should always check with the nursing practice standards for the state in which you're licensed and working, as well as with the organization or healthcare facility where you work. Today, we have nurse educator Adrian Edland on the show to talk about how bringing nurses from other disciplines and units within the hospital into the critical care environment has improved upon the team approach to patient care in her facility. Let's listen to Adrian discuss breaking down silos and putting together a team nursing approach to patient care. Hi, Adrian. It's great to have you on the program today to talk about uh, nursing onboarding for existing nurses into critical care units and all of that amidst the process of everything going on with COVID-19. Before we get into the questions though, uh, would you like to just give us a brief introduction? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, thank you. Uh, my name is Adrienne Edland. I am a service line educator for cardiovascular, thoracic, colorectal, and dialysis at the University of Rochester Medical Center, uh, Strong Memorial Hospital. I have been in my role for about three years. And then prior to that, I actually worked for a very long time on our progressive care unit that cares for artificial heart transplant, advanced heart failure patients, where I worked as a staff nurse as well as as an assistant nurse manager. And then I worked at a community hospital before that. So I have the gamut of experiences um, from community to academic medical center. I also work for Joint Commission as a disease-specific VAD reviewer, which is very fun and rewarding. I really enjoy getting the opportunity to learn from other programs and bring back some of that to our own program. In the midst of everything that's been going on with COVID-19 and how it's uh, struck systems in different ways, uh, how did you as an educator in your system approach this crisis? It was a little bit daunting. You know, we didn't necessarily know what we were up against. Um, I will say that I'm very lucky. I have amazing collaborative partners where I work. We wanted to provide education for progressive care and medicine nurses that didn't necessarily have any or had very limited critical care background. So I partnered with our clinical nurse specialist in our cardiac intensive care unit, and we developed a entire, ended up being almost a little book by the time we were done of tip sheets on different critical care topics. Um, we did arterial blood gas, you know, drawing from an art line, managing an art line, looking at mechanical ventilation, um, ARDS, you know, pretty much a wide host of different topics that would be relevant to a critical care arena. We initially put them actually out on our um, shared intranet page for people to access. And then as an educator, I wanted to make sure that people actually using this. So I reached out to them and identified that they weren't. They wanted something in their hands. They wanted to physically see it when they were down there. 
we laminated these, made these quick little books. Um, and I personally hate doing that because things change and then you have all these books out there circulating. It's much easier to, if it's on uh, an intranet to change it, but it was what the nurses wanted. They wanted something so that when they were down working in these critical care areas, that they could understand why they were doing what they were doing. And they actually felt like they were really partnering in the care. So it was exciting. Um, it was exciting to see that we were building something that was meaningful. We relied on a lot of the resources that were provided to us by AACN. I pushed those out to all of our staff. You can never be too prepared, as well as the resources that Society of Critical Care Medicine had put out. And then one of the other pieces that we did was, you know, communication is a big piece during all of this and maintaining a culture of open communication, collaboration, and transparency, I think helps to foster trust. So I usually do a service-based newsletter that goes out to um, intra-professional groups throughout our servicing that I put out monthly. I kind of had to adapt and recognize that things were changing on a daily basis. They were changing on an hourly basis. So people needed a place to go to get that information. I wanted to make sure that our nurses had the nuts and bolts. What has changed? What do you need to know um, in regards to caring for this population? I started doing that initially weekly and sending it out and it was very well received. And then thankfully, as things started to ramp down a little bit, we could go to every two weeks and really kind of um, identifying educational opportunities. How did you decide on using a team-based model for COVID-19 patients? Our leadership actually at our organization was able to kind of see what was happening in downstate New York and in New York City and recognize that they really needed to make use of the resources that we have in place to provide optimal patient care. And unfortunately, we just don't, we're not swimming in ICU nurses, you know. So how do you do more with less, essentially, while still providing that safe, quality patient care that you want to do? So they had made that decision based off of seeing what was happening across the state as well as across the country. And then we as a service recognize that we have cardiac intensive care nurses who their knowledge is just amazing. Um, and they're a huge resource and asset to be able to provide this care. So we wanted to find a way that we could really free them up to be those people to go down and work in the highly infectious disease unit. So you had that level of expertise, especially as it came to like ECMO. And, you know, we adopted an idea to do team-based nursing at our service level, where we had somebody centrally kind of allocating staffing and seeing where we had the need. And we started cross-training our progressive care and medicine nurses who were interested um, and had voiced an interest in over to our cardiac intensive care unit and providing them with shadow opportunities. And we had just actually started to get it rolling and our numbers came down. So we didn't have to hold the trigger, but we recognized that this is a great thing to have kind of in our back pocket. And maybe we should be changing the way that we provide care to be a little bit more nimble in case we experience a second wave or um, or some other crazy pandemic hits. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to know what the future is going to hold. It definitely is. And, and as you talked about training and partnering with nurses from different units across the hospital, how did you pick up on which competencies were important to uh, focus on for the non-ICU nurses in the team-based model that you put together? Yeah, so, you know, every single nurse, um, especially along our service line, we're a very diverse service line. So one of our progressive care units takes care of PA catheters and is very comfortable with arterial line tracing. And then one of our other progressive care units takes care of sheets, but then our others don't. So a lot of it is knowing what the knowledge base is of the nurse going into it and what you're going to need to supplement with. But the other piece is just checking in with them. You know, I, I don't think it can be overstated enough that having a conversation with them, like, what do you feel comfortable with? You know, I assumed prior to all of this that all of my progressive care nurses were really comfortable with ABG interpretation. And that was a misstep on my own. 
not everybody is. Not everybody uses it in their daily practice. And it's one of those things, if you don't use it, you kind of lose it. So, you know, recognizing that we could be overlooking something um, that might be a need for them um, and developing the education to really tailor it to them. So a lot of it was focused on individualizing the education. What kind of innovations did you find yourself having to kind of bring to the fore when you were looking at educating these non-ICU nurses in these settings? Uh, Were there any technologies you started to implement or, or things that you brought in that you hadn't used before? Sure. So we got really good at Zoom. Um, I wish I had stock in Zoom because my goodness, we we use it like champs. And thankfully, it's fairly intuitive um, so that people who've never used it before were able to figure it out pretty Um, So we use that for quite a few things. Um, obviously, there's some things that need to be done traditionally and you need to do it in a classroom setting. So we just had to make sure that we were following appropriate social distancing. And then the other piece is I've always been somebody who is a visual learner. Um, as a nurse, I have to touch, I have to do, I have to have to put my hands on it. And a lot of our nurses are like that. We recognize they really, they rely on that visual input. So I believe in my whole, I, I have an iPad, I can go anywhere. So I reached out to a lot of our people that we can interact with that are the experts on things. And we did a lot of videos, a lot of quick, just-in-time training that we you know, put up on our um, site that we have and pushed it out to nurses. And they loved that. They were actually seeing and working with the equipment that we're familiar with at our organization and, you know, getting that key information that they need in order to provide that safe level of patient care. I like the idea of the just-in-time training that, you know, the, the concept of you're getting it out quickly and turning things around in a fast pace when needed. But I'm sure there were other also opportunities that didn't change, you know, where you had more traditional classroom settings that were just required because of the topic or the materials or the the type of education that needed to happen for that particular thing. Uh, what did you do to deal with social distancing and keeping your students safe in that environment? You know, a lot of it was relying on technology where we could um, to provide some of the content. But, you know, we have a dysrhythmia class that we offer all of our new hires and they have to complete um, before they're able to care for patients independently. So it wasn't something that we could push back. You know, they needed it in order to be able to successfully come off of orientation. But we had to do it in groups of 10 or smaller. So it was, you know, pulling from other people who could teach the content. Um, Thankfully, classroom space was wide open. You know, nobody was having classes or anything. So that piece of it wasn't hard, but it was engaging and making sure that people are comfortable teaching a topic that maybe they hadn't covered before um, in order to be able to ensure that these nurses got those opportunities. So a lot of it was just being creative, you know, figuring out how are you going to do this? One of the things that we did is we just traveled to them and did skills, you know, one-on-one in some situations because that's what was necessary you know, they needed to demonstrate pigtail flushing and they didn't have an opportunity to, in orientation, we were focusing on those smaller groups. So bring it to them, you know, let's go over that. Let's do those hands-on skills. What would you recommend to educators out there in in this situation that they add to their toolkit? Uh, what, What things did you add that you think are just now essential and you'd recommend other educators adopt? I think as an educator, we want to do everything so neatly and, you know, um, when I conduct a needs assessment, I, I really want to get absolutely everybody and get as much information as I can to really, you know, make a determination. Kind of went out the window with this. Um, I really had to just, you know, individualize. Like, I had to reach out to nurses and find out what they needed in order to make them feel supported, in order to make them be successful. It doesn't necessarily have to be something formal. It can be a text message, an email. Um, honestly, I think I got the most open and best feedback 
by going through text, um, which who would have thought, you know, that's definitely going to be a go-to for me going forward. If I need to talk with somebody, it's not rigid. It's not in a, a survey or anything. So they can really give you all of their feelings and their feedback. The other thing as an educator, I don't think we have training in that emotional piece, having an understanding of how to do that, how to be successful, how to be supportive um, in order to help others, I think would be really beneficial. And I'm, I'm still struggling with this. You know, I can, I can deal with a family and help them through a grieving process, but your own colleague, it feels a little bit different. So identifying ways to make us more effective at that, I think is really important going forward. As you look at things, I know you said you're kind of on the downside of the curve the time we record this, uh, but things are so uncertain and things could turn around at any time. It just feels like it's hard for us to prioritize the way we educate moving forward. Is there anything you've done to kind of put things in a certain order? Is what is the most important thing? How have you prioritized educational needs moving forward now that you've gone through this process once? I think one of the the things that was pretty eye-opening about this was that we were able to identify some of the things that we had taken for granted before that people naturally had experience in or had an understanding of. Now that we have this downtime, we can really develop more formal education um, in order to make sure that everybody is held accountable. Tip sheets are great, you know, to somebody, whether they read, they understand it um, remains to be seen. There's no way to really assess that aside from observing practice. So we have the opportunity now to put a lot of this into our learning management system and to make sure it's accessible to staff so that we're not kind of scrambling um, if this were to all of a sudden have a second wave. What about the nurses that you have cross-trained? You know, you've got this team approach. Uh, they've come in, they've, they've just soaked up all the information and knowledge that you've been able to pour into them. How many of them have moved into the, the mindset that like, I like this, I like critical <laughs> care. This is something that I think I might want to do. So we've actually had quite a few of those and it surprised me. Um, I haven't been a progressive care nurse. I, I had done critical care and it wasn't for me. It takes a very special person. Um, progressive care was definitely my, my background, my comfort level. Uh, we've had a handful of nurses who, especially those who've gone down to the Hideview, um, as well as those who we had started doing that team-based um, shadowing opportunity over on our own cardiac ICU, who've said, this is what I want to do. Um, myself as an educator, it's exciting because I feel like my goal is to retain people. I don't care where I retain you to. I just want to retain you. I want to grow you as a nurse and give you those opportunities. So we've had an opportunity to kind of identify people who want a different experience. And maybe if we hadn't, they might be looking for something elsewhere. So it's a way to retain them to our own service, as well as to recognize the skills that they have already going into it. And again, tailor that orientation may actually make things more efficient and streamline things going forward. So I'm excited about it. We've talked a lot about the innovative things you've done that have worked. Uh, what about, is there anything out there that you've tried that just didn't work for you that you, or, or things that you've been doing that you would stop moving forward? Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily stop doing anything, but I might augment my approach to learning. Um, I've always done things so that they're meaningful to nurses. So trying to identify, let's, let's trim this down. I'm not somebody who feels like it needs to necessarily have a lot of fluff to it. Like, let's really get to what is going to allow you to be able to provide safe care. Um, our regulatory type things we have to do, but maybe trying to identify a way to drill that home. Like, why is this meaningful? Why do I need to know this information? I think if nurses feel like it's 
relevant to a practice, that it's impactful somehow, that it'll make them more likely to engage and understand and um, be involved in it. So I think that's something that I'll bring back from this experience. And then just trying to find a way to be more emotionally in tune with uh, my fellow colleagues and everything and making sure that I can support them. That's something that I haven't been able to do thus far. And I want to definitely grow my experience as it relates to that. You just talked a little bit about this, but I do want to ask specifically, how has going through this crisis, you know, over the curve and down the other side and uh, changed the way you practice as an educator, but also you personally as an educator? Prior to all of this, you know, I always, I always felt like a member of a team, but at the same point, I didn't recognize that there was silos that I was putting up and, you know, all of us within our service line kind of did our own siloed type activity. I was the educator. This is my responsibility. I push out education. I make education. You know, I do onboarding of new skills, but I didn't necessarily see how I was involved in that cohesive team approach. And it was hard at first. Um, As a nurse, you want to be a helper. And this was probably one of the first times that I wasn't on the front line. I wasn't taking care of patients and trying to feel like I was still doing something meaningful at first. I struggled with a little bit, to be perfectly honest. How was I, you know, supporting my fellow nurses? And I think recognizing that I can provide them something that is meaningful, that's going to make them be better at their practice, that's going to make them feel more comfortable, that's going to allow them to understand the rationale of why they're doing and make them feel supported um, was huge. But it took me a little while to kind of, kind of come to that. Um, I struggled initially. You know, I wanted to just jump into scrubs and and go help out and you know do whatever to to support my fellow nurses. And I kind of had to wrap my head around that this is a different way to support them. I think as a, as a service line, you know, these sorts of situations can either tear people apart or they can bring them together. We've always been a strong group, but I feel like we're more cohesive and collaborative. You know, right now we're still utilizing our little staffing pool that we had done during the height of this to allocate people to the high do. And now we're using it to allocate people to where they're needed across our service line you know, to make sure that everybody is feeling supported, that everybody has the resources to provide the care that they need to provide. Um, and that's something that I really want to see continue because it's exciting and it's very rewarding. If there is another surge of COVID patients uh, down the road or even another pandemic or some kind of incident that stresses your system in a similar way, uh, how are you prepared to ramp up education again? Is there a need, do you feel, to accelerate the process um, to bring nurses on board more quickly in different units? Or are you really comfortable with doing things like the just-in-time learning and things like that, uh, the, the uh, tip sheets and things that you've already talked about? I joked around with my husband that, you know, we had the COVID pandemic and then now there's murder hornets and, you know, it's just what next. Um, And then we had snow the other day here in Rochester. So who knows? It's May. Um, That being said, I don't know that we necessarily need to accelerate the process because I feel like you still need to provide them with structure and orientation and appropriate training opportunities for them to be successful. I do feel like sometimes if you take shortcuts on that, that, you know, ultimately people aren't going to feel supported and they're going to leave and then you're kind of back at square one. Um, That being said, though, it never hurts to kind of look to see if there's ways to improve efficiency. Um, We have a pretty long critical care orientation, and I know that our um, clinical nurse specialists and our unit educators over there are looking at, are there ways that they can streamline the content? Are there ways that they can onboard people differently to make sure that they're still getting those skills, but in a more efficient manner? So I think it allows us the opportunity to step back and say, 
okay, during this, what worked really well? And then what didn't? What would be beneficial going forward if, if this were to happen again to have had in place? You know, right now we have the luxury of time, so we should be using it to our advantage. When you run into another educator in a similar role as yours from another system, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them to be prepared for uh, dealing with a COVID surge in their system? I think, you know, developing content is that's second nature to us. You know, coming up with a tip sheet is, is nothing. You know, I can do that in an hour. I think figuring out the way that you're going to best meet the emotional needs and help to support, especially your new hires. It's terrifying to become a nurse. You know, you, you go into it, you want to do all the right things, but you're scared. And now you're coming into it at the height of a pandemic. So how can we as educators support these individuals, make them realize that, yeah, you're making the right decision, that you're going into an amazing profession. And it's not always going to be like this, um, you know, kind of teasing out those pieces and everything to make sure that we're offering them the support that they need. It's got to be a scary time to be going into the healthcare field. Adrian, one last question. Um, we've talked about the technology you've used and the way that uh, leadership has stepped up to, to bring your other educators together into a more cohesive unit. Um, can you talk about how that has impacted the, the overall impression of healthy work environment in your system um, from the top down? I feel very lucky and proud to work at the organization that I work at. We really have authentic leadership through all levels. Our chief medical officer actually sends out an email um, every single day, along with doing town halls and things, but he sends out one seven days a week that really breaks down you know, where we're at with this whole COVID pandemic, how it's impacting our medical center, and you know, what are the resources that we need, what are the educational opportunities, um, what are things that are going to be available to people. So it's helped to kind of create a culture of transparency. Our director for the cardiovascular and thoracic and colorectal dialysis service line um, does that as well. So initially she was doing it seven days a week. Also, um, as we kind of tapered, she's not doing it on the weekends, but it's even more concise. It breaks down, you know, how many patients do we have in house? How many of those patients are intubated? What are the needs? Um, one of the great things that they did from the beginning was they were really honest and open with us about our PPE. You know, we would see people on the news talking about not having PPE and you'd hear about people dying from not having the PPE that they needed to provide care. We actually knew from an enterprise standpoint where we stood at all of our different facilities with PPE needs. Um, our organization was really innovative. They, you know, utilized different departments to try and help produce some of that. Our pharmacy department started producing their own version of the hand sanitizer. So we were able to be, you know, really innovative um, in how we address that. But nurses knew, PCTs knew, it didn't matter what level of the organization you were, you knew where you stood as it related to PPE. You never felt like you had to use something sparingly. Um, obviously, you weren't going to overutilize it, but you know you felt comfortable that you would have the tools that you needed to be able to provide um, the care in order to keep yourself safe as well as keep your patients safe. We did a lot of uh, town halls. So um, initially, we had a Zoom phone call that we would do daily when things were kind of at their height with leadership across our um, cardiovascular services, including outpatient which is not usual for us because inpatient and outpatient usually stay pretty separate. Um, but it was really important because we were all working together and a lot of those outpatient staff were coming to help us at the inpatient setting. Um, so we did that. And then we recognized that we had to bring in all of our key stakeholders. So everybody should be invited to these conversations. 
um, and we were having weekly town hall meetings that our director ran um, and she would bring in, you know, pertinent topics. So we had infection prevention come and talk to us a little bit about the spread of this and what is known and, you know, antibody testing and all of that, as well as just where we stand as far as um, facility support. It's been a very proud uh, moment for me to work at an organization that I, I feel very supported. I don't feel like as nurses, um, we had those same concerns that some of our colleagues across the country had. You know, we we really felt like they embraced our safety, that they recognized that there was a lot of concern, a lot of fear, and they did everything that they could to potentially alleviate it. I was very impressed with the way that they approached this. Other centers could possibly learn from that. You know, I'm not a big person into over-communicating, but in situations like this, it doesn't hurt over-communicate because everybody's on the same page. Everybody has access to their email. They see that information. You know, they can attend the town hall if they want more feedback. Um, We had screensavers that covered like all of the employee assistance um, opportunities and everything that were across all of our computers so that people knew that they could reach out in addition to that actual like emotional check-in that we were doing. Adrian, it's been great having you on the program and uh, thank you so much for your insights and sharing with us. We really appreciate everything you've had to say today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. That concludes today's episode of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses COVID-19 Support Podcast. You can stay up to date with us at our website, aacn.org. And for more great updates, connect with AACN through Instagram at Exceptional Nurses. Please join us for our next podcast episode when we will be speaking with Cinda Hilton Rushton, Professor of Clinical Ethics, about the importance of cultivating resilience and response to ethical challenges and moral suffering. I'm nurse journalist Jamie Davis. Thank you for taking the time to join us in the midst of your busy day. We hear you, we're with you, and we support you.